Tonight we're discussing Rivka, the second of the Jewish mothers. And Rivka is much more complex than Sarah. Even though there is much less written about her in the Torah itself, her character is much more complex in terms of the richness of her character and the metamorphosis that she goes through. We are introduced to her as a result of Abraham almost offering his son Isaac as an offering. Abraham takes his son Isaac up and is under the assumption that he's supposed to sacrifice him. And it turns out that that was just a test. But after that incident, he realizes that his son came this close to dying without having been married. And so he sends his servant, Eliezer, to go find a wife for Yitzchak. And he gives his servant Eliezer very specific instructions that he is to go back to Abraham's homeland, to his family, and to take a woman from amongst his family. And we are told about this very detailed scenario that Eliezer sets up a almost... um, he sets up this whole scene in which he will know who is the right person. And the Torah goes into great detail the incident at the well where we actually meet Rivka. And it is quite an um, very it is quite a detailed incident, and the Torah actually repeats it three times. There's no other story in the Torah like this that it goes out of its way to repeat the story three times. The story goes as follows, that Eliezer says, when he comes to a well, and he sets up this whole gimmick almost, that the first woman that comes, that I ask for a drink, and who offers me a drink, and gives my camels to drink as well, that will be the woman that I know, that God has sent me to be the wife for my servant Yitzchak, and he details exactly step by step what he hopes will happen. The Torah then tells us step by step exactly what happens, and Rivka then insists that Eliezer comes back to her home, back to the tent with him, with her, and the Torah actually tells us that when Eliezer gets back to the tent, he recounts the incident word for word. Well, this is what I said should happen, and this is exactly what happened. The Torah repeats that story in detail three times. This is a side point. We are told from that incident that more can be learned from the stories of our forefathers and foremothers than even some of the most profound mitzvahs in the Torah. Because some of the most profound mitzvahs have one line in the Torah, dedicated to them. But this story has not just paragraphs dedicated, but the story is repeated three times. That's where we actually meet Rivka. She then brings Eliezer back to the tent after Eliezer tells her why he's there. 
she brings Eliezer back to the tent, introduces him to the family. The family is one of the most infamous families in the Torah. Her brother is a man by the name of Lavan, which literally means white. And that's because he puts on the facade that he's pure, when really he is the most conniving and scheming individual throughout the entire Torah. The quintessential character in the Torah of a person who is just despicable is Lavan. And that is her brother. And that is the family that she comes from. And this young lady is then asked, do you want to go back with Eliezer to go marry this person Yitzchak? And she says yes. And she leaves the family. And she goes back with the servant Eliezer to marry Yitzchak. On the way back, she actually sees Yitzchak. On the way back, they encounter each other and she sees him from afar. And the Torah says that when she saw him from afar, she descended from her camel and covered her face. This is actually one of the sources at a wedding. You see the bride covers her face. This is actually the source of one of the of that. That Rivka did that when she saw Yitzchak. She covered her face. And they get married. And initially she is barren. She's unable to have children. This seems to be a recurring theme amongst the mothers. We saw that by Sarah. It happens again by Rivka. She is unable to have children, however, she then does become pregnant, and her pregnancy is an excruciatingly painful pregnancy. So much so, that the pain is so overbearing and overwhelming, that she actually thinks she's going to die from it, and she assumes that it must be because of some iniquity, some misgiving that she has done, and so she goes to a prophet to ask, why is this happening to me? And the prophet tells her, it's because you have twins inside of you. You have twins, an older and a younger, and these two are constant odds with each other. And we are given the prophecy of Jacob and Esav, Yaakov and Esav, and the prophecy of them constantly being at odds. And she is told that the younger son will be the leader, and he will end up having the older one serve him. And sure enough, she gives birth to these two boys, Jacob and Esav, Yaakov and Esav, and they grow up, and she sees this struggle that exists between them. And she actually notices that her husband Yitzchak favors the older child, that her husband Yitzchak favors Esav, because Esav is a hunter, he's a leader, he's a man of strength and power, and Yitzchak assumes that's what's needed to be the leader of the Jewish people. But she knows that really it has to go to Yaakov. And so she creates this elaborate scheme. She is the mastermind behind this elaborate scheme, I don't know if you're familiar with this, that Jacob steals the blessing that Isaac, that Yitzchak gives to Esau. Yitzchak is very old, he's going blind, and he realizes it's time to hand the mantle over to the next generation, the mantle of leadership. And so he tells his firstborn, Esav, even though they're twins, one does come out first. So he tells the firstborn, Esav, it's time for me to give you a blessing. I want you to go out and hunt, because he was a hunter. I want you to go out and hunt and catch some game and cook it up and make me a nice meal and I'll feel real good and satiated and then I will give you the blessing of leadership. And when Esav runs out to hunt, Rivka, hears that that's what 
Yitzchak is planning on doing, she turns to Jacob and she then sets up this elaborate scheme of charade and masquerade and deception. She tells her son Jacob that you're going to go in, we're going to put skins and fur on you, and we're going to put your brother's clothing on you, and you are going to go in, and you are going to tell your father to give you the blessing. And he's going to think it's Asa, but he's going to give it to you. And Jacob is petrified. And Rivka says, I take full responsibility for this. And she takes on the mantle that if anything, God forbid, I mean, you're playing with fire here. Just like Abraham, we spoke about Abraham, Isaac is just as powerful a figure. And you're going against his wishes. This could be very, very detrimental in terms of consequences. And she says, I take full responsibility. Any negative consequences that come as a result of this should come to me, not you. And so Jacob goes in. And sure enough, Isaac gives Jacob the blessing, thinking it's Esau. The whole charade plays itself out. And then ultimately, we are told that Rivka laments over Esau's choice of a wife. Esau goes and marries a woman of ill repute. And she is very disturbed by that. And she tells her husband, this is the only conversation that we have in the Torah between Yitzchak and Rivka, where she says, I am extremely upset about Esau's choice of a wife. I don't want that to happen to Jacob. Please send him back to my family to find a wife. And Yitzchak agrees and sends Jacob home to her family to find a wife. And Jacob goes, and of course we know what happens there. He finds two wives. We'll speak about that when we speak about them. We're not even told about Rivka's death in the Torah. The Torah just alludes to her death. We are just told that that's the last we see of Rivka, and then much later in the Torah, the Torah alludes to her death. That is the story of Rivka. That story is an incredibly profound story of growth, of character development, and of strength. And there are basically three ideas that I want to speak about. The first idea is, I mentioned that Rivka comes from a family of depravity. I mean, her brother is someone so despicable that his entire life that the Torah plays out is one trickery after another. He is the master of trickery. He finds out that Eliezer has shown up to find a wife for Yitzchak, and all he cares about is how much jewelry this man has to give. That's all he cares about. The Torah tells us when he saw the jewelry, he got so excited. Later, when Jacob shows up, this is his sister's son. Can you imagine if your sister's son shows up? His sister's son shows up, he's like, oh, great, i got to put him up. <laughs> great, i got to put him up. i got to feed him for a month. I'd really just like to send them on the way, but i got to feed him for a month. Right. And then after a month, when he sees that his sister's son actually brings prosperity to the family, he begs him to stay. And he gets him to stay for seven years. And at the end of seven years, he tries to get him to stay for another seven years. And just because he wants to just use him and manipulate him. And from this, we are given the image of a woman whose character is the exact opposite. When Eliezer showed up at the well 
I went on and on about how much the Torah repeats this story. I'd like to tell you exactly what the Torah says about what she did. Eliezer has shown up. Now, you have to picture this. The one thing I tell everyone when I teach Torah, and I will tell you ladies the same thing, anytime you hear a story that's told to you from Torah, make the story real. Even though whether the story is true, it's not true, that's a separate discussion that maybe we can have in one of the classes. Are these stories true? That's regardless. This is a story that's trying to teach us a lesson. And the only way that we can learn a lesson from it is if we make the story real. That this is a real character that has real emotions, feelings, etc. Do it from a literary analysis and you still will have to imagine that this is a real story. Eliezer shows up at a well. Where's this well? He's just traveled through the desert with camels, with tons of camels laden with gifts that he brought. Because remember, Abraham is one of the most powerful people in the world. He wants to find a wife for his son. This is like Bill Gates finding a wife for his son. It's not going to be just any random girl. It's going to be, oh, this is Bill Gates, the son. This is Sheldon Adelson I met the other day. I mean, they're talking about someone that is world-renowned. If you're going to find a woman to marry a son of that stature, you're going to show up and say, look at what you could possibly marry. So he shows up with camels laden with gifts and jewelry and food, but he's come through the desert. Now, you are a young lady with your father's flock and you've been sent to the well to feed and to call, to have your father's flock drink and all of a sudden a stranger out of the desert comes over to you and says would you please get me a drink what would you say now even if you are someone who's brought up with wanting to do kindness wanting to do hospitality you're still a young lady by a well at the edge of a city that leads to a desert and a strange man is coming up to you and asking you for a drink. Even if you want to give him a drink, he then says, my camels are thirsty as well. At that point, and he doesn't have a jug, let's say, and that's why he wants to borrow your jug. Do you know, my assumption is, even if you are one that is extremely kind, you know what you would probably do? Or at least this is probably what I would do. Here's the jug. Help yourself. There's the well. Use as much as you like of my jug. Take your time. Give your camels to drink. I live in that big tent up on the top of the hill. When you're done with the jug, do me a favor, just drop it off. <laughs> what does Rivka do? The Torah tells us that she runs to the well. The moment he says, can I have a drink, she runs to the well, fills the jug, gives him to drink, runs to the well, and gives his camels to drink until they've all had their fill of water. Not just a little sip. The Torah actually says that she continued to do this, running back and forth from well with a jug, well with a jug, until all his camels had their fill to drink. You know anything about camels? Carry a lot of they carry a lot of water. Here's this young lady who doesn't even know this person, sees that he's shown up from the desert, 
and has the sensitivity to know that he's probably exhausted. He's traveled through the desert. Sure, I could give him the jug, but that would cause him to exert himself. And look at how many camels he has. And she runs out of her way to continuously fill these jugs. We are told that Rivka is the epitome, the one who stands for something known as chesed. And chesed is often translated as kindness. You know what the difference between kindness and nice is? You ever ask someone, you know, you'd like to get married one day, right? Well, what would you like in your spouse? One of the most common answers is, oh, I want to make sure that they're a nice person. That's a foolish answer. You don't want to marry a nice person. You know who you hope is nice? It would be nice that the cashier at the grocery stand is nice, that your bank teller is nice, that if a police officer gives you a ticket, it'll be, you know what, let him be nice about it at least, not obnoxious. That's nice. That's not kind. Kind is looking at another person and figuring out what they need. Nice is whatever it is that I have to do, I should do it with a smile. I should do it in a way that doesn't cause them stress and pain. That's nice. Kindness is what does the other person need? What does the other person need? And I'm going to see to it that they get it. That's kindness. Look at how far Rivka comes in a household that the epitome of the household is, what can I get from this person? Not what does this person need, but what can I get from this person? Everything about love on her brother as well as her father is all about what can we get from this person? Because Lovin's household, see, don't misunderstand Lovin's household. Lovin's household is a household that, that is built on hospitality. Because the moment she meets Eliezer, the moment Rivka meets Eliezer, and after she gives him the water, etc., etc., she says, no, 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 you can't stay here. You have to come back to my tent. There's plenty of room for you. We have a guest tent that you can stay in. We have guest servants that will wait on you. And we have food and plenty of food. Our house is a house of hospitality. But the reason that they have hospitality is a radically different reason than Rivka's desire for hospitality. Lovin's desire for hospitality is, let me cultivate relationships because they will benefit me. How to win friends and influence people. Lovin is the master at that because that's why his name is White. Everyone walks away thinking, Lovin is my best friend. But Lovin couldn't care less about you. Lovin only cares about what he can get from you. So that's the opposite of, what do you need? And do you know what this teaches us about Rivka? The first lesson I want to share with you about Rivka is something called independence. Rivka is an unbelievably independent person. I mean, think about it. She's a young lady who has a brother who's a clearly a powerful figure in his own right and a father and has a flock. And who's the one taking care of the flock? And this is eons before women's lib comes on the scene. She's out there taking care of the flock. Not only that, in a time period, in a time period where marriages are prearranged, 
where a woman has no say about marriage, where the father says, I'm marrying you off to this person. The Torah tells us emphatically that when Eliezer shows up at their tent and says to her father, the reason I'm here is to find a husband for my master's son. I'm here to find a husband for my master's son. This, none of this wealth is mine. This is a tremendous lesson in humility and truth, but that's a separate class. I'm here to find a husband for my master's son. And look at who my master is. Look what I brought. I mean, my, husband, my master's no slouch. Nonetheless, the Torah says that the father and the brother turn to her and ask her, do you want to go? Do you want to marry this man? In a time where women had no say, she was given the choice to go and marry. She was given the choice to say yes or no. She is an incredibly independent person. And the reason that that is so important is because one of the first lessons that we have to have as a human being is the sense of independence. And you know what independence is? Independence is not just the ability to stand on my own two feet and support myself financially. That's one type of independence. That's financial independence. It's not just the ability to not care about what people say about me. Oh, did you hear what so-and-so said about me? How dare they? Oh, I can't believe so-and-so said this about me. You know what? I know I'm a good person. I don't need people to tell me I'm good, and I don't care if people tell me I'm not. That's another type of independence. That's called emotional independence. It's crucial. People need emotional independence. The ability to know I have value, regardless of what other people say about me. But there's a third kind of independence that is probably even more important than those first two, and that is intellectual independence. The ability to know I'm right. The ability to know what's right. The ability to know that my values that I live by are true, not because I grew up with them, not because my father taught them to me or my mother taught them to me, not because my peers taught them to me, because I had the ability to question them. I had the ability to ask, how do I know that this is the right way to live? And once I ask that question, how do I know this is the right way to live? I can then choose what's the right way to live. And Rivka was able to do that. Rivka was able to grow up in a home where she was taught what matters is you. What matters is looking after you. And even if looking after you means taking care of other people, but only in as much as that will benefit you. And she was able to stop and question that and say, is this really the right way to live? Is this really the true values that I should embrace? And she was able to define for herself what are the true values to live by. And that, yes, we should open our home to people, not so that we can gain from them, but so that we can help them. That, yes, we should care about other people's needs, not because if I take care of their needs, they'll take care of my needs. No, we should take care of their needs because it's the right thing to do. That's independence. And that is the level of independence, by the way, that Abraham had. 
When we spoke about Sarah, we spoke about Abraham being the first person that decided to go out and teach the world morality. The very first lesson the Torah teaches about, about Abraham is that God came to Abraham and said, leave. Leave your home, leave your family, leave everything you know and go to a land that I will show you. And that's a whole separate class in terms of why that was the ultimate test for Abraham. But one of the most crucial lessons there is that Abraham had to be willing to leave everything behind in a way of saying that I'm going to leave my values that I grew up with and embrace a whole new set of values because I know them to be true not because I grew up with them, not because I was taught them by my family, because I know them to be true. And he had to have what's called the Mesiris Nefesh. Mesiris Nefesh means the ability to put yourself out there, even though you don't know what's going to happen. The ability to go out on a limb, even though it's totally precarious and unclear, what's going to happen if I do this? And Abraham was able to do that. And Abraham understood that in order to build the Jewish people, it's not enough that just the man has that character in him. One of the foremothers needs to have that character as well. And Sarah didn't have that character. Because remember, Sarah was following Abraham. Sarah had Abraham to look up to. Sarah understood that God talks to my husband Abraham. And Abraham says, this is what we need to do, so this is what we do. Now, yes, Sarah, we spoke about her last week. She had conviction and clarity on her own. But she wasn't going out on her own because of her own sense of independence. She was following Abraham. Think about it. If Abraham wants to find a wife for Isaac, his son, and he wants to find that wife back where his family is from, so then who should he send? His son. Isaac, I want you to go back to my family and I want you to see amongst my family who you find attractive, who you find appealing, and who you think would make a good wife from my family. Go! Instead, what does he do? He sends Eliezer his servant, which means he specifically did not send his son, which means Rivka has to be able to make this decision to leave without knowing what she's going to. She has no idea who this Yitzchak is. All she knows is that this man Eliezer is telling her that this is the son of a man who is trying to change the world and teach the world meaning and teach the world greatness and his son is going to carry on that mantle of leadership. Are you interested in joining that? And she has no idea who he is. And she has to have the ability to say yes and go with that conviction. That's called independence. That's called a sense of Mesiris Nefesh, a sense of being able to say, I'm going to take this road, even though I don't know what's at the end of it. That's the first lesson of Rivka. A sense of independence. But an independence of clarity of conviction and most importantly the ability to question where she came from 
because all too often, one of the most prevalent excuses people have for not living a life of greatness is blaming where they come from, blaming their parents, blaming their society, how they grew up, the economic situation they were born into. I'm sure you hear this all the time. And Rivka comes along and says, I am the pillar of chesed. I am the pillar of giving of myself. And you know where I came from? I came from the epitome of selfishness. And I was able to leave that on my own without any idea where it was going to take me. That's called change. The ability to change is the first lesson that Rivka teaches us. Number two, the concept of chesed. I spoke about chesed being kindness, not nice. Don't look for someone who's nice. Look for someone who's kind. Again, what's the difference between nice and kind? Nice is, I make sure that I don't cause someone unnecessary aggravation and pain. That's nice. I make sure not to cause someone any unnecessary pain and aggravation. You know, kindness is, I want to know what this person needs, and I will take care of it. The essence of chesed, though, has to be understood from what Rivka was doing. And this is the chesed that we have to strive to do. Because Lavan, when he finds out that Eliezer is at the well, and that Eliezer offered gifts and offered unbelievable kindness to his sister, Rivka, Eliezer runs. I mean, Lovan runs to Eliezer. Lovan runs out to take care of Eliezer as well. So one second. Eliezer is running out to take care of... Lovan is running out to take care of Eliezer. And this is before he sees the jewelry. And he's like, ooh, <laughs> we can get something out of this. Right away... I, I need to take care of Eliezer. Why does he need to take care of Eliezer? Lovan understands Eliezer did kindness to my sister. I have to do kindness to him. Eliezer took care of my sister. He looked out for my sister. I'm obligated to look out for him. All too often, we think of chesed. We think of kindness as something that we're obligated to do. That if someone's kind to me, then of course I have to be kind to them. And that is true. That is true. That if someone does a kindness to you, you are actually in debt to them. That if someone does an act of kindness to you, you are actually indebted to them and you need to do a kindness back. It's not like you have a loan out that you have to pay them back. But it's an obligation. That they were kind to you, in turn, you have to be kind to them. But you know what that's called? That's not called chesed. That's called truth. That's called acting in a truthful way, in a just way. That's called justice. And if someone's kind to you, you're kind back. Chesed is even the person that I owe nothing to. Even the person that I've never had any experience with whatsoever. Even a person that is a total stranger. That person has needs as well. 
That's real chesed. That was what Rivka was doing. Rivka saw Eliezer and saw here is a total stranger in the middle of the desert that came out from the desert with camels, must be exhausted, thirsty. He has needs. I'm going to take care of them. He didn't do anything for me. The other shepherds were bullying me, and he stood up for me, which is what we'll see later in the Torah with Yaakov. No. Nobody was bothering Rivka. Nobody was harassing her. Eliezer didn't stick up for her or anything. Eliezer was just sitting there, waiting for someone to offer him a drink. And that's exactly what she did. Real chesed is looking at the world and seeing what does the world need and taking care of it. That's chesed. And that is what Rivka stood for. And that's something that we have to stand for. Because we're not that much greater than Lavan if all we do is look out to take care of those that are in our sphere of relationships. That of course I take care of anyone that I know. And of course I'm the first person that all my friends say, oh, there's the first person to run and do a favor for you. That's the first person that if you need something, they're the first one there to take care of it. Yeah, that's nice. That's nice. That's being kind. But that's not being chesed like Rivka. And that's not that much greater than Lava. Rivka says, what does the world need? And I go out of my way to do it. And that's how we should look at the world. We don't just look at our own little sphere of influence. We don't just look at our own little microcosm of the universe and that's all I care about. Okay, so there's people starving in the world and so there's people who have this problem. It's not my problem. The third lesson of Rivka, which... We'll now speak about marriage and relationships, which I know is always an interest. And that's something called balance. Because what Rivka stood for was chesed. The idea of change, that's a lesson we learned from Rivka, that she had the ability to go from the depths of selfishness and grow to the pillars and to the heights of giving. But what she stood for was chesed, giving. And who does she marry? She marries Yitzchak. Do you see, Eliezer, when Eliezer got to the well, Eliezer set up a whole scenario. He said, I'm looking for a wife for Yitzchak. I'm not just looking for any wife. I'm looking for a wife for Yitzchak. And Yitzchak is a certain character. And I need the right character that goes with that. And in order to understand that, you need to understand who Yitzchak was. We started off the story of Rivka of saying that Yitzchak was almost put on the altar and slaughtered by his own father. Probably the image that we all had growing up when we heard this story as little kids was probably a small little kid being put on an altar by his father. Do you understand that Yitzchak was a grown man in his 30s? And Abraham was an old man. Now, think about it. If any of you have brothers or boyfriends or men that you're friendly with that are probably in your age range, do you really think that any of their fathers could force them to go onto an altar to be slaughtered? Yitzchak willingly went along with this. 
Yitzchak agreed that if this is what needs to be done, this is what needs to be done. Because Yitzchak's whole persona, he stood for one thing and one thing only, justice. That's it. Yitzchak is what we call Midas Hadin, the attribute of justice. Yitzchak is a walking gavel. That's it. Oh, God said to do it? Done. Okay. You know what Yitzchak is? Spock from Star Trek, if you're... There's no emotion. It's God said to do this. Done. This is what's right. That's it. Well, you know what you need in a relationship for that? You need chesed. You need kindness to balance that out. Because Midas Hadin has nothing to do with kindness. And kindness has nothing to do with Midas Hadin. The judgment is, you're poor, that's the judgment. The judgment is, is that he gets it, you don't. When Yitzchak wants to give the blessing to his older son Esau, that's judgment. Because, do you know what the tradition is? The tradition is that the firstborn has the rights. It's his rights. He's the firstborn. Done. There's no discussion. That's what's needed to be. Not only that, if you analyzed it in a courtroom, you need a leader. Who's the leader? Oh, he says the leader. Okay. Judgment. Done. Eliezer, who told you to schlep through the desert with all these camels and all these gifts? That was your choice. You're thirsty? There's the water. That's judgment. One day you have children. You didn't do your homework? Okay, gavel. Boom. You didn't do the dishes? Gavel. Boom. That's not a home. That's not a marriage. That's not life. You need kindness. You need to know when to say, all right, I know he doesn't deserve it, but give it to him anyway. I know that really they shouldn't get this, but you know what? This is what they need. It's not what they deserve, but it's what they need. Remember, what's kindness? Kindness is you see what the other person needs. Judgment is this is what you deserve. Okay, so you don't deserve it, but you need it. All right. And that's called balance. You ever hear this ridiculous notion that people say opposites attract? Oh, it's a ridiculous notion. Get rid of it. Get it out of your vernacular. Don't ever say it again. And I'm sure you all will anyway when you discuss relationships and who you're looking for an opposite attract. And it's nonsense. Mother Teresa and Adolf Hitler would not have made a great marriage. <laughs> it would be amusing as anything. It would be an amusing marriage. One of the greatest marriages ever in the history of television is all in the family. They are so opposite, it's amazing. And that's what makes the show so comical. It's because that's a marriage of disaster. But yet it works, but that's TV. Opposites don't attract. When you look for someone to marry, you know what you need to look for first and foremost? Similarities. You need to look for someone who matches you in terms of your values, in terms of your goals, in terms of your desires for what you want to build. You need to look for someone who has the same outlook on life in terms of goals and values. However, 
differences complement. You need differences. You don't want to marry yourself. <laughs> that would not be a good marriage either, because there would be nothing to cause either one of you to grow. You see, opposites don't attract. Once you have the similarities that bring you together, now what you need is differences that complement each other. Yitzchak is judgment, and Rivka is kindness. And those two opposites, those two differences, complement each other, not opposites. Because they're not opposite. Because ultimately, real judgment understands that, you know what? You need to give them what they need. Because the only reason you're judging them is because you want them to learn right from wrong. That's what a judge is supposed to do. I'm judging you because you need to know what's right and what's wrong. When your parents punished you, when you were growing up, it's they did it because they cared. It's one of the hardest things as teenagers to realize is that the parents punish because they care. It's only when we get older and we stop resenting them for that that we, oh yeah, they did it because they care. <laughs> Takes a while. Takes a long while for some. <laughs> But that's what judgment is. Judgment is we're doing it because we care. We need you to understand what's right and what's wrong. But you know what? So therefore, since we care, sometimes we have to realize that we have to give in. But guess what? If all we have is kindness without any judgment, well, that's just as evil. Because if you show kindness in the wrong instances, if you constantly give in, then you're teaching your child that there are no consequences and nothing matters. And that's also dangerous and destructive. You need both. Because the reason the parent gives in is because they want the child to know that they love them. So you see, both have the same goal. The judgment and the kindness both want the same results. So it's not opposites. It's complementing. Differences compliment. When you're looking for someone to marry, you, that's what you need to do. You need to have the independence that Rivka has to know what you stand for. And know it because you know it, not because you grew up with it, not because you were taught it by your peers or society, because you took the time to question, what am I living for? What do I stand for? Why do I embrace these values? And you need to have the courage to embrace values even if they're different than values you grew up with, if they're the right values. And to go out on a limb, to walk a road, not knowing what's at the end of that path. And once you embrace those values, now find someone who has the same values, but has differences that complement you. That if you are someone who is on this end of the spectrum, Find someone who's on this end in a different value, in a different character trait, but not in an opposite. Complement each other. One more thing about complement and balance that Rivka teaches us is the following. I said that Rivka teaches us the concept of change. And that's what we have to do in life. We should constantly be growing and changing and analyzing ourselves and saying, you know what, this is a bad habit that I have, I get rid of it. You know what, this is actually a wrong outlook on life I have, get rid of it. Constantly change. However, some people misunderstand change with discarding 
themselves and throwing away who they are. And that is not good. We have to understand that who we are, the experiences that we have in our life, are part of us. They don't define us. I am not the sum total of my mistakes. And I'm not the sum total of my good actions either. But those experiences are a part of who I am. Just because I decide to take on a change in my life, I don't negate my past and say, forget that. That was, I don't know who that person was and I don't, do. that's nonsense. If you think about it, where did Rivka come from? She came from a home that they were the masters of what? Deception. Lovan was the master of deception. And Rivka goes to the opposite extreme to become the pillar, the pinnacle of kindness and giving. But yet, what does she ultimately do? She ultimately deceives her own husband to guarantee that the mantle of leadership goes to the right child. And she had to. Because, remember, Yitzchak was an old man who was blind. Now that is not only literally, but it's figuratively as well. Esau was a character of such depravity himself. And Yitzchak didn't see it. Because he couldn't see it. Esau was his joy. Yitzchak was blind to who Esau really was. And if Rivka had gone to him and said, you can't give the blessing to Esau, he wouldn't have been able to hear it. No, but I had a prophecy from God that this is what... He wouldn't have been able to hear it. He would have said, Rivka, I hear. And of course, I know Esau's got his misgivings. I mean, trust me, every parent knows their kid's misgivings. But sometimes they tend to say it's not that bad. <laughs> okay, Rivka, I know Esau's got his challenges, but he can do it. He can handle it. And, and I appreciate your concern, and I thought about it, but he can handle it. He wouldn't have heard it. But she knew, because she had a prophecy, that this has to go to Jacob. This has to go to Yaakov. There was only one way she could do it. And that was through deceiving him, through the charade. She was able to take the experiences that she grew up with and use them in who she identified as now. And that's what we have to do with ourselves. People sometimes grow up with all kinds of nonsense. And, and I always like to say, people walk around with luggage. People are walking around with luggage. And sometimes plenty of that luggage has such dirty laundry in it. Just open it and just let it all out. Just let it, don't even wash it. Just throw it away. But don't throw the suitcase away. The suitcase is usable. The lessons we've learned from our past, the experiences all give us an insight into how to look at life. And that was Rivka's balance. She was able to balance on the one hand the kindness that she embodied, but yet the experiences that she had helped her have a fresh look on life. And therefore she wasn't deceived. She wasn't naive to the games they self was playing. And she understood, no, no, it's got to go to Jacob. 
these three things play themselves out in marriage in such an unbelievable way, and that is really what Rivka is all about. Everything about Rivka is about marriage. Think about it. We were first introduced to Rivka, how? When Abraham realized Yitzchak needs to get married. Rivka. She's introduced. And remember I said the last time we see Rivka was? She was upset at who Asaph married, and she wants to make sure Jacob marries the right person. Her life begins and ends in marriage. And her name, remember last week we spoke about, now the last time we spoke about the concept of names. Rivka literally means, the word Rivka in Hebrew is a, I, I forget the English word for it, but it's a yoke, yoke's not the right word, but it's a piece of equipment that's used to bundle two animals together to work. That's what a rifka is. It's something that takes two animals, ties them together so that they can work the field. That's what marriage is, but that's a whole separate discussion. <laughs> but the idea of rifka is taking these ideas and putting them together. The balance. And that's what marriage is all about. There's one last thing I want to share with you if we have a few minutes that Rivka embodies, that teaches us an unbelievable insight into marriage that is a particular challenge for women. And for those of you who are here for the story of the Garden of Eden, you will recall that we spoke about, as a result of the tree, that now the persona, the character, the nature of a woman is that she seeks and desires the approval of a man in her life. And we don't have time to rebuild that. We spoke about that then. That yearning plays itself out on a constant basis throughout a woman's life. And we see that with Rivka. Remember I said that Rivka, when she was going back with Eliezer, she saw Yitzchak. And she got off of her camel and covered her face. And the commentary tells us that we are taught that the reason she did that is because she saw immediately the character and the stature of greatness that Yitzchak was. And she felt inferior and inadequate. That she was not worthy to marry such a man. And we see this again. Remember when she was pregnant and she was having an unbelievably egregious pregnancy to the extent that she thought it was because of something she did wrong and she wanted to go ask a prophet. Who's she married to? One of the greatest prophets to ever live. She doesn't go to her husband and say, can you ask God why this is happening to me? She doesn't go to her father-in-law who was probably the second greatest prophet ever to live. <laughs> Why is this happening to me? She goes to someone outside the family, and we are told it is because she thought that Yitzchak would look down on her because that her pregnancy was so painful because of something she had done wrong. 
she constantly had this element of insecurity in terms of how Yitzhak would view her. But yet, interestingly enough, the Torah tells us that that was self-imposed. The Torah tells us that Yitzchak viewed her as the embodiment of his mother. Now, yes, I know that that is something no wife wants to hear. <laughs> but you have to understand, remember, we spoke about who Sarah was. And that Rivka literally filled those shoes in terms of greatness, in terms of righteousness, in terms of character. Yitzchak viewed her as all of that. Yitzchak viewed her as equal to Sarah in greatness. She, though, constantly was in doubt. That's a challenge, I would say, perhaps. Again, speaking in generalizations. This is a challenge that women have in relationships. I was told when I got married that one of the biggest questions that will be on my wife's mind is, does he love me? It's no accident, ladies, that in a marriage, in a relationship, it is the woman that is constantly asking the man, do you love me? Tell me you love me. You don't find the men, in general, there's always that one guy who is the feminine in the family, but in general, you don't find men saying, tell me you love me. And there's a reason for that, but that's not our discussion tonight. Our discussion tonight is that there is this element of doubt. And much of it is self-imposed. Be aware of it. And don't let it affect you. Don't let it create a wedge in the relationship. Now, men have to be taught that this is true, and that's why I was taught. When I got married, that's going to be one of the number one questions on her mind, and therefore it's my duty and my obligation to, in, to guarantee that she knows it. But I'm sharing this with you because I think that women need to know this, to know that there is this element of self-imposed doubt that can be destructive be aware of it. The Torah is telling us that this is a reality. Don't let it creep in and create that wedge. On the contrary, look at who Rivka was in the other arenas. Understand the complexity of her character and the greatness at which she achieved, where she went from the depths to the heights. And therefore, you know what that tells us? that each one of us has the ability to do that. And the only way we can do that is with clarity. And when we have that clarity, be willing <coughs> to go with it. Because, by the way, that's a lesson in marriage as well. That Rivka had the ability to embark on a journey that she had no idea where this was going to take her. Ladies, that's marriage. You're going to have to make that choice one day. God willing, a man is going to ask you, will you marry me? Unless you want to reverse the question, but okay, never mind. But one day, regardless, you're going to be in a situation where you have to choose, are you going to marry this man? And do you really think that you know everything about him? Do you really think that you can foresee what's going to be? 
Do you really think that you can know if this is going to work out or not? No. But you know what you have to be willing to do? You have to be willing to take that walk with the independence and the clarity of knowing, you know what, it looks good. <laughs> All the pieces are laid out in such a way that this looks like the right decision. Now I have to just go with it. That's life. And if you think that by living together for years that will resolve anything, you're mistaken. There are actually plenty of studies that show that the divorce rate is higher amongst couples that live together than couples that don't. Because you don't know. And you walk in with a facade of, well, we know what it's going to be. It's very different. Once that I do happens, things change. And it's a very different relationship. And you have to have the ability to walk that path. That's Rivka, a very powerful woman but one that I think, ladies, you can aspire to be like. Any questions? Again, silence. <laughs> I'm processing. It's a good silence. When you said the woman is always asking, do you love me? I just had this vision of Tevya and like, go down the roof. Like, right. Do you, do you love, love me? me? Mm -hmm. So it's the opposite. You love oh, in that movie, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's true. <laughs> that's true, but... <laughs> it's, I don't know why my brain just flashed that. It's... That is true, but, but you don't find it. No, I know. You don't find it. <laughs> I always... I pause this. <laughs> <laughs> Never know who's going to listen. Eh, it's for women. I doubt men will listen. I always teach women. Men will tell you that they love you as infrequent as you allow them. <laughs> what do you mean things change after the I do happens? Like, what do you mean it's a different happens? relationship. Why do you say that? My best friend in the world married his college sweetheart. And I asked him, is it the same relationship? He said, of course not. There is an element that changes, and that element is subtle, but sometimes in life the most subtle nuances are the most profound. The realization that I can't just walk away creates an unbelievable element of responsibility that doesn't exist prior. Ultimately, regardless of how long you've been together, regardless of what type of verbal commitments you make to each other, all that means is that it gets a little more sticky. But the ability to walk away is still there. And there's no remnant. There is no element of residue that is with you forever. A marriage is there forever. When you get married one day, 
you may or may not tell your husband about past boyfriends. You may or may not. And you know what? I'm sure you'll tell him about some that were very significant. But how much detail? There is no way around the reality of divorced the moment you meet someone. It's within the first conversation it comes out because it's a part of you. That means that there's something different. That relationship is now permanent. Regardless of what happens, it's there. That didn't exist prior. That changes the relationship. Exactly how it plays itself out, I can't give you anecdotal incidents, but certainly the reality is there, and that permeates everything. Yeah. That word that you said about the unknown, mm -hmm. where does it come from, and how do you spell it? <laughs> Which word did I say? Uh -oh. well, like me, it sounded like mystery almost, you said. It was like, did anyone else hear it? Uh -oh. It was, um... We can replay it. <laughs> Clarity, conviction, and courage. I, I, I definitely mentioned that, that you need to have the clarity and the conviction and the courage to move forward into the unknown, even though you don't know what's going to be at the end. Um, I mean, where that comes from is how you get that is only through clarity, only through a realization of consequence. You see, I'll share with you a tremendous misnomer that exists in the world. Fear. I think we spoke about this once before. The concept of fear. People walk through life thinking that we fear the unknown. I promise you nobody is scared of the unknown. Excuse me. Nobody is scared of the unknown. No one. The proof of that is a toddler at the top of a flight of stairs just learning how to walk Ooh, down the steps walking over to the range and sees that really cool looking red swirl because they have no idea they're the only living being that does that by the way you take a dog or any animal and put it on the edge of a cliff as a puppy or a baby animal, they immediately cower back. Only a human. Oh, cool, look at that. A river. <laughs> because they have no idea. Your best friend says to you, and again, you're ladies, so this will probably work better with men. They don't, because men's best friends usually are, you know, somewhat cynical and corrupt and will play practical jokes. I hope women are not as, as deviant as men in this arena. But if your best friend says to you, I want you to go into this room, and I promise you, I promise you that the moment you walk in and see what's waiting for you in there, 
you will be in a state of bliss and ecstasy. But the only way you can go in is if you go in blindfolded. But I promise you, nothing bad will happen. And I, I'm, I, 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 look at me, I'm getting giddy just thinking about what you're going to experience when you go in there. But you got to go in blindfolded. Would you hesitate? No. I just realized that as you say that, like, no one's scared of the unknown. You're scared of the bad unknown. You're scared of the possibility. Oh, there you go. The only thing we are scared of is what we perceive to be there. We are scared of what we perceive to be. Nobody is scared of the dark. You know what they're scared of? The monsters that are in the dark. <laughs> A child who's never been taught about the monsters under the bed and in the closet, you put them in their crib, you turn the light on, you say goodnight. It's not until an older child says something about, you know, there's a monster in the closet, that all of a sudden, ah! Nobody's scared of flying. They're scared of the plane crashing. We're never scared of the unknown. We are only scared of what we perceive to be. We are scared of what we perceive to be negative outcomes. The way that we can have the courage and the conviction to embark on the unknown is to have clarity as to why we should go that way, regardless of consequence. Because the consequences of not going are worse. That even if I die as I go in that building to save that child, not going is worse. That's a negative consequence. I'm going in that building. But you might die. Yes. That's how we have the clarity and the conviction to embark on the unknown. I don't know what's going to happen. But not going is worse. What we have to realize is life has consequences. There are negative consequences. But negative consequences are not only in the area of the unknown. They're in the area of the refraining. There are serious negative consequences. And if we want to have courage to go into the unknown, we have to see those, be real with them. I'm scared to get into a relationship. Why? Because I might get hurt. Okay, that's scary. And that might happen. But if you don't get into a relationship, you will be alone. That should be a worse thought than getting your heart broke. Okay, now I see consequences. Now I have the courage to embark. Oh, thanks. Because we focus too much on all the bad outcomes and we forget to think about what would happen if we didn't right. do anything. Right. And, and it's, 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 I, I teach a, a seminar to men called The Seven Steps of Being a Man. Many of them obviously <laughs> apply to being a woman as well, but they're primarily directed at men. And one of the seven traits is realizing consequences, living with fear. It's called living with fear. To really embrace life 
and quote-unquote be a man, but again, it applies to women as well in this aspect, is you have to live with fear. Live with fear. But from the perspective that I just shared with you, live with fear. Realize there are consequences. And make sure you don't just focus on the negative consequences in that direction. Make sure you focus on positive consequences in that direction. Negative consequences of the reframing. Because there's positive consequences as well. Fear just means consequences. That's all fear is. There's consequences. Like Daffy Duck said, consequences, consequences, as long as I'm rich. A great Daffy Duck. But anyway, there's a, consequences are both good and bad. So just like there are consequences, but if I go into a relationship, my heart might get broken and I will be in pain. Yes, that's on one side. But on the other side, you might have years of tremendous love and tremendous connection. And you know what? You still might get hurt at the end. Because after you live an incredible life together, and you have 80 years of marriage that is beyond what anyone could possibly have thought, he dies before you. And now you're going to be a widow. Okay. Yeah, that's painful. But look at the positive that came with it. Because on the flip side, I've got 80 years of loneliness, of being alone. That's living with fear. I'm not going to let that happen. I'm going to go out and I'm going to walk that path. And that's what Rivka did. You have like an extremely amazing way of like hitting the nail on the head. Like you don't even know. <laughs> you don't even know. Got that on tape. I can play it for my wife. Serious. <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank you. Compliments <laughs> do not come easy for me. But, all right. um, but that's what Rivka had the ability to do. That's why I say Rivka is an unbelievably complex character. She could have easily, easily just lived in her own little bubble. And look, I became a kind person. And I didn't, I didn't follow in the path of my brothers. I, I, I broke out of that. But you want me to walk off into the unknown? I don't know if I can do that. She's complex. Rivka is incredibly complex. And she is a metamorphosis of character that goes so far beyond Sarah. I mean, Sarah is a, a woman of incredible strength and fortitude. I mean, we can't, I can't even picture what she is possibly like in reality. But she doesn't go through the metamorphosis and the complexity of character that Rivka has. Next we will see Jacob's two wives, Rachel and Leah, in the next installment. <laughs> you know, Joshua, Joshua has your seven traits of a man on his refrigerator. I know, I know, yeah. Him and Alex put he it up. He added an eighth 